Some of us came here this morning and we feel like we're uh, kind of trapped in the chaos. Feels like the circumstances of life are overwhelming to us and it's hard to find sure footing. It's hard to find which way is up. And we, we needed to hear today. We need to hear right now that God is stable, that his character is unchanging and that his love is unflinching, that he is steadfast and immovable. And some of us need to be reminded that all other ground, all the other places that we look to for security or hope or significance, they're sinking sand. That over time, it's, it's terrain that can't be trusted. So for those of us who walked in with a deep sense of grief, or if you've been wrestling with fear, or anger, or shame, or despair today, I want to pray for us. So that that image, that sense, that reality of God as rock might be made real to us. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that you are a rock that doesn't move. That you are a refuge. You are a harbor in the midst of all of the madness. That you're, you're a rock that we can cling to when we try to recover from our own failures. And you're the rock that we can stand on when the behavior of, of others kind of buffets us. You're the rock that we establish our feet on when all, all the other people and places and principles that we've tried to lean into have failed us. God, I pray that you would speak the words that we need to hear this morning. And that we would walk out of this space knowing that now you hold our hearts in your hands. You hold our futures as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Jesse. It was the summer of 1990 when the bugs came. The periodic cicadas only surface once every 17 years in northern Illinois. I was 16 years old, and as such, I'd never seen anything like it before in my life. They emerged in the millions. The roar of their chorus was deafening. Some biologists say that the, their song can reach between 90 and 100 decibels. They swarmed on the pavement and in the grass and on your car and kind of gathered around your windows and your doorsteps. I mowed lawns for the summer, and I probably mowed a few thousand insects too. The cicada swarms felt biblical in their scope, but the truth is they didn't, they didn't do us any harm. They were more of an annoyance than they were an apocalypse. But the locust plague in the biblical book of Joel is truly devastating. If you haven't heard the first two messages in our series by our lead pastor, Craig Reese, you can go online and listen to them. Craig contends that the locusts were either actual or symbolic, like an invading army, or both. Either way, as a result of the devastation, the land of Israel was stripped bare. 
Now, this isn't like a late frost which might kill a grove of oranges or bad weather that could threaten the success of tulip time. These locusts have eaten everything. They've turned the trees into skeletons and the farms into dust. And everyone who has watched is stunned. In an agricultural society, a catastrophic event threatens their livelihood. If the grain is gone, there's no guarantee that they're going to be able to eat. And it also threatens their faith. If God was not successful in thwarting this, what can they believe now? The first half of Joel's message is a call to realize the depth of Israel's disobedience. It's also a chance for them to reflect on what God is saying to them in the midst of their chaos. And finally, it's a chance for them to repent. The word repent means to turn around to redirect or reorient their behavior in a way that aligns with what God says is right and true. Joel helps the people process their first question, which is why, and move on to the next question, which is who. In the midst of all that has happened, who is God to us now? And who do we believe him to be tomorrow? All too often, when the bottom falls out in something in our lives, whether it's a relationship that fell apart or a family that's struggling or we experience the loss of a loved one or the death of a dream, the crisis in a business. Many times we put a period where God puts a comma. One way to read tragedy in ancient Israel was the locust plague happened and as a result, life as we know it is over, end of story. But Joel reminds us that that's not the end of the story, but that God redeems all things. God redeems all things. God redeems all things. Every last detail in his way and in his time for his purposes. And the second half of chapter 2 in Joel says, even in the wasteland, even in the aftermath, we can trust him. In the ashes of God's discipline, he still promises evidence of his goodness, freedom from shame, and movement by the Spirit. Let's look at verses 18 to 22 together. It says this, Then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people, and the Lord replied to them. Now, some translations speak about this in the future tense, saying the Lord will be jealous, the Lord will take pity, the Lord will reply. What is all this? It's a reminder that God's heart is filled with love for his people. You're only jealous for the things you care about. You only take pity on people you have compassion for. And God says what? He goes, I am sending you new grain, new wine, and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I will drive the northern horde far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land. Its eastern ranks will drown in the Dead Sea and its western ranks in the Mediterranean Sea. And its stench will go up, its smell will rise. Let's get a little graphic there. Surely the Lord has done great things. God says, I'm going to take your enemy and drown it in the sea. Now, if you know anything about the story of the ancient Israelites, that idea may sound familiar. In Exodus chapter 3, God is sending a series of plagues on the nation of Egypt to get their attention, to remind them that they have veered off the path 
and to let them know that God loves and has chosen a specific group of people. And so it says that God sends a wind and that wind blows in a swarm of locusts. And once the locusts do what God needs them to do, he sends a wind going the opposite direction and pushes them out over the Mediterranean, uh, over the sea. And then you skip a couple of chapters later and you know that the people of Israelite are trying to escape from the Egyptian armies. They get to a body of water. God sends a wind, parts that sea. People miraculously make it across on dry land. And then they're, as their enemies pursue them, the wind shifts. The waves collapse over them and their enemies are drowned. So this whole idea of God using a wind to push Israel's oppressors or any reminders of their enemies into the water would have been an idea that was familiar with the Jewish audience. And God says, surely I've done great things. I've done them before. I'm going to do them for you again. Verse 21 says, do not be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. And God even takes like a time out to speak to the, to the animals. He goes, don't be afraid, you wild animals. These even aren't, aren't even the domestic pets. These are the wild animals. For the pastures in the wilderness are becoming green. You're going to be able to eat again. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. God promises to provide evidence of his goodness and bring us to a place where even after all that has gone wrong, we can say again, Surely, without, without denying, God has done great things. God is calling people to hope again. Why? Because the landscape is barren. In the last chapter, we read that the fields are ruined. The ground is dried up. The grains destroyed. The new wine dried up. The olive oil fails. Sometimes we look around and all we see are empty trees and barren vines. And God is saying to us, you can't see it yet, but hold on. These trees will bear fruit again. As hard as it is to imagine, these trees will bear fruit again. In late 2005, my wife Kelly and I were praying for God to give us a second child to expand our family. And for reasons that weren't clear to us, uh, this wasn't happening on our timeline and I remember wondering if God was withholding something good from us or if God was disciplining us from some secret past unconfessed sin or if God was just numb to our cries or deaf to our prayers. But not long after that, Kelly discovered that she was in fact pregnant. And later I went back through my journal to kind of compare the timelines of what God was doing and what I was praying and to my shock, I discovered that at the exact moment I was yelling at God, he had already heard and answered my prayer. I just didn't know it yet. Even in the wasteland, God promises future evidence of his goodness. And for those of you who feel overwhelmed or if you feel like you're living in a wasteland, I want to know this. Is it I want to ask you to consider, is it possible that God has already set the wheels in motion to give back whatever it was that was lost. A day is coming when you will be able to say again, surely God has done great things. Let's continue in verse 23. It says this, Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you autumn rains because he is faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains, as before. 
the threshing floors, that place where you gather the harvest, will be filled with grain. The vats, the tanks where you gather liquid, they're going to overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The great locusts and the young locusts, the other locusts and the locusts swarm. My great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel and that I am the Lord your God and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. Now some of us, we choke on one of these verses. The one that says, I will repay you for the years that the locusts have eaten. I'm going to repay you for what the great army that I sent among you took. Some of us are like, all right, stop. I'm confused. If God's going to give something back that God took in the first place, why did any of it have to happen at all? Well, that's, a, that's a fair question. One great, brilliant British author, a guy by the name of C.S. Lewis, says that many times God performs spiritual surgery on us. He goes, surgery is when you cut somebody, where you inflict short-term pain so that you can get to the root cause of an illness, correct it, and maybe ultimately save that person's life. About 12 years ago, I was experiencing um, discomfort in my chest after a workout. Like I had shortness of breath, I had this pressure on my chest. And um, just FYI, if you ever want to go to the front of the line at the emergency room, tell them that you can't breathe and you're having chest pain. You get to, they'll like, do not pass go. You, they, they will see you immediately. And so they did and we found out that I was having what's called a spontaneous pneumothorax. My lung had collapsed. I didn't know what that meant. And I'm lying on the table in, in, in the ER bay there. And I asked them, well, like, what are you going to do? And the ER doc goes, oh, well, we'll just, we're going to poke you with a needle. We're going to pull out the extra air and you're going to be fine. A few moments later, my wife, Kelly, who is a nurse, came in to see me, and she goes, what's happening? I told her the diagnosis. She goes, what are they going to do? I go, they're just going to poke me with a needle. They're going to pull out an air bubble. I'm going to be great. And she's like, I've been a nurse for a long time. I've never heard of that before. She goes, so uh, let, let's wait and see. And then another doctor came, and they said, oh, here's what's going to happen. We need to insert a chest tube in between your ribs. And what that'll do is it'll allow us to, to kind of reinflate your lung. I'm like, all right, that's great. And then they came with a surgery packet and they pulled out a, a scalpel and like a little antiseptic wipe. And I was like, what, what, when is anesthesiology coming? <laughs> and they go, oh no, we're just going to give you a local. We're going to cut you and we're going to go right in. Like we need for you to be awake. And I'm like, this sounds like a horrible idea. And it was a teaching, and of course they always say like, this is a teaching hospital. Do you mind if junior practices on you? And you're like, I... I think the right answer is yes, but I want to say no. And so one of these, these younger docs, they, they cut me, and then they start prying my ribs apart with their fingers so that they can jam a rigid plastic tube that's about a dime's diameter wide into my chest wall. It was not pleasant. And the ER nurse, God love her, she was like, here, I will hold your hand. And I was like, are you going to need that hand? Because I will break all of your fingers. I think I did. I, I, think she, I, I think I saw her in a cast later that day. Because I, I just, I, it hurt so bad. And because the person who tried it initially did, wasn't entirely experienced, I flinched. I'm like, are we done? And the supervising physician said, no, they screwed up. We're going to have to start over. I was like, for the love of God. I, I'm ready to check myself out against medical advice. I will take my chances. I'm going to go home, put my feet up, and watch my TV. If I die, so be it. This isn't worth it. And what were they saying to me? They were saying, we know this isn't fun, 
But we're doing it so that we can save your lung because if you don't have it, you will die. Is it possible that God sometimes says, there's something in here that I need to get to? And the first part of this process is going to hurt. But it's for your long-term well-being. It's for your ultimate good. You want a physician who inflicts pain without the ultimate end goal of total healing is? That's a, that's a sociopath. That, that's, somebody, that's called torture, not surgery. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do we believe that God is a torturer or do we believe that he is a surgeon? And so when God says, I sent the locusts for a reason, but I'm going to restore everything that they took. God says, I am going to get you back to where you were and better. God promises us freedom from shame. The line says, then you will know that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And one of the other prophetic books that is echoed in this one, Ezekiel, the core theme is God says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring devastation and then I'm going to bring restoration. Devastation, restoration. And when it's all over, everybody's going to know that I'm the Lord. And to Israel, through Joel, God doesn't say, hang on, the check's in the mail. He says, be glad, rejoice. He's given you rain because he's faithful. The language here doesn't speak to survival. It declares abundance. God says, I'm sending you abundant showers for the fall and the spring. Rain for all the crops. He says, I'm going to repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. Why does he say years? The locusts were probably only there for a couple days, if not a couple weeks. Because many of us know the hard way how one single catastrophic event, one storm, one betrayal, one bad decision can destroy something that you have spent years building. And God says, never again will my people be shamed. Now, some, some scholars, some anthropologists contend that there are different lenses that different parts of the world view, use to view reality. So let's say in, in the West, like in Canada, the United States, Australia, Britain, we tend to function in what they call a guilt and innocent culture. Guilt and innocence culture. We're primarily individualistic. So we say, is that person making wise choices? Are they guilty or are they innocent? But the ancient Near East culture and certain parts of the Middle East and Asia function this way today. Instead of focusing on the individual, they focus on the community. And you may have heard this phrase before. Many of them operate with a view of reality called a shame and honor culture. Shame and honor. And the people constantly toggled back and forth between Shame and honor, a sense that they were blessed or the sense that they were cursed. And if one person did something horrible that disgraced a village or a clan, the whole family bore the brunt of that shame. And shame was a cloud that was difficult to escape. It was a stain that was nearly impossible to get out of a tribal psyche. And God is telling this generation of Israel, I'm going to restore you in such a way that you will never be shamed again. It's difficult for many of us to understand how powerful these words would have been to their original hearers. I heard a story of a venture capitalist who grew up in very challenging family circumstances in an under-resourced neighborhood. And one fall day, she was sitting in her elementary school classroom when she heard an announcement 
The staff informed her that she was part of a group of students who had won Thanksgiving dinners for their families. And decades later, she got emotional when she was telling that story. She said, they didn't say we got a handout because they were needy. They said we got a prize because we were winners. We were rewarded because we were special. What were the teachers at the school doing? They were rolling back the concept of shame and they were clothing students with a dignity that they so desperately needed. That's why I love what happens here at Celebrate Recovery on Monday nights. We have a team that reminds those of us who participate in these programs that our past, that our addictions, that our failures, that the abuses that we've endured, they do not define us. That we don't have to live under the shadow of shame for another minute once we know the truth. And this is why the cross is such a powerful image and symbol for those of us that are followers of Jesus Christ. In the Hebrew tradition, the most shameful way to end somebody's life was to hang their body naked and vulnerable on a tree. It's no accident that Jesus died by crucifixion. The Romans had a myriad of other ways that they used to execute people. But the reason that Jesus hung on a cross is so that he could die a death that include a significant magnitude of public shame. So that we could know that when we trust his sacrifice on our behalf, our shame will be rolled back, eviscerated, removed. Even in the midst of the madness, God promises to give us evidence of his goodness, freedom from our shame, and then a promise of a movement by his spirit. Verse 28, and afterward, after you know that I am the Lord, after I peel back your shame, then I'm gonna pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So God's going to pour out his spirit on all people. It says, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. The good news is that God, according to Joel, is going to unleash his spirit in a new way. It's interesting there that the word for spirit in both Hebrew and Greek is the same word that we get for breath or wind. How would locusts get moved into a territory? By the wind. How would they get removed? By wind. And God is saying that he's going to use a divine wind to empower and equip his people. So the good news is God's going to move in a fresh way. The hard news is that God is going to reveal his power through some pretty dramatic wonders like blood and fire and smoke. The best news is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's going to invite people to know him. And many of those people are going to say yes to that invitation. Centuries later, just weeks after Jesus' death and resurrection, this prophecy is fulfilled. The Holy Spirit descends on the early followers of Jesus in a very 
obvious and undeniable way in, the, in a similar manner that the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus when he started his ministry. And there are symbols of both wind and fire that are included here. The episode is so dramatic that it draws a crowd and Peter references this very section of verses from Joel chapter 2. And in this speech, he says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. Now, Peter doesn't pull any punches. In the same way that Joel said to Israel, the ancient Israelites, look, part of the reason that this plague is upon you is because of choices that you've made. And Peter says, Jesus Christ was crucified and every one of you who are within the sound of my voice, you are complicit. You were part of the crowd that just a month and a half or two months ago was clamoring for this Jesus to be crucified. Jesus says, Peter's like, this blood is on your hands. But here's the good news. After that crucifixion, God raised him from the dead. Why? Because death couldn't keep a grip on Jesus. It could not keep its hold on him. And I believe that when we become followers of Jesus as well, death can't keep its hold on us either. Death cannot grasp you in any form. Death doesn't get to hold you with darkness. Death doesn't get to hold you with despair. Death doesn't get to hold you with lies. And ultimately, death doesn't get to hold you with physical death because we know that by the power of the resurrection, for those of us who call Christ king, our physical death is not the end of our story either. It's not a period, it's just a comma. Peter continues, Therefore, let all Israel, let everyone within the sound of my voice, be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Like, where do we go from here? Peter replied, repent. Stop doing what you're doing. Stop resisting the person of Jesus and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, he's hearkening back to the book of Joel. He goes, you'll decide that there's only one God. That's repentance and belief. And then you're going to experience the gift of the Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Now, there are some of us who we've never taken that step that Peter talked about right there. We've never done that. We've never done repent and believe. We've never said, you know what? I have come to a point in my life where I fully and readily acknowledge that there's only one God and that only that God can do good things for me. Only that God can forgive and restore me. Only that God can roll back my shame so that I never taste it again. And only that God can infuse me with the power of his spirit that enables me to live a different kind of life than the one that I settled for before. If you've never said that and you're ready for that moment, then you are on the brink of becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. And if that's a decision that you're ready to make today, we would love to talk to you after the service. In fact, if you go out these doors and turn left when the service is done, there's a baptism meeting right here in the prayer room. We've got a team there that would love to talk to you about getting baptized a week from today 
at Holland State Park as an act of your devotion to Jesus Christ, your understanding. See, a lot of people say, well, you know what? Baptism, that's kind of like, that's a private moment. That's between me and Jesus. Unfortunately, I, I don't find scriptures that back that up. In fact, every time in the scriptures, especially in the book of Acts, when people are getting baptized, they're getting baptized in public places. And when they get baptized, it's an act of surrender. It's saying, I am giving my life to God. Some people say, I can't get baptized yet because I, I'm a brand new Christian. I'm not mature enough in my walk to make that kind of step. But again, when we read the book of Acts, the very day that people decide that they're in is typically the day that they get baptized. Baptism isn't a sign that you've completed a level of maturity. Baptism is a birth certificate. It's a declaration that you're ready to begin the process. So baptism is an act of worship. Baptism is an act of community. It's saying, rather than living my life on my own for myself, I am choosing to become a part of a larger spiritual family, the body of Jesus Christ. When you get baptized, you step into this amazing tribe of people who are getting baptized all over the world in some really challenging circumstances. I've heard of stories where because it's not safe for people to get baptized publicly in East Asia, they're getting baptized in bathtubs. I heard of a friend in Afghanistan who they took the mattress off of a bed frame, put a tarp on it, filled it up with water, and baptized people that way. You, you become a part of this group of people who all over the world are putting their faith in Jesus Christ. So not only is it an act of worship and an act of community, but it's also an act of mission. It's you saying to other people, just people, random strangers or whoever friend and family that you are invited, or people who are going to see your Twitter or Instagram story as a result of you having your picture taken on the beach, you're saying to the world, there is a God who did something great for me. There's a God who rolled back my shame. There's a God who is giving me his spirit. I am changed and you can be too. Some of you don't know that last year when we did the baptism on the beach, there were just random strangers who were walking by, would talk to some of our team volunteers who were in church and saying, what's going on? They say, oh, we're baptizing people. And there are some people who had very frank and candid spiritual conversations with our, with our volunteers. And they said, you know what? I think, I think I'm ready. We had people who just went to the beach to throw a Frisbee and they walked away being a part of the family of God. And we can't, we, I really believe at my core that that's going to happen again this week. And some of you, you're going to get baptized because you went to a meeting today. Other people who don't even know that it's coming are going to get blindsided by the love of God. It's going to be epic. And if you're at baptism, you're going to be there to see it. So my hope for you is like, if you're getting baptized, of course, be there. Invite everybody that you know. If you're not getting baptized, come, if nothing else, but for the free ice cream. I think there's going to be free ice cream. If there's not, I apologize. <laughs> some of you are like, wait a second, that's the only reason I was going. But please join me in this. Be praying. Be praying that God is going to use this event to take people who are just there for the sunset and had no idea that they were going to meet the sun. So let's be believing that God is going to um, use that experience for worship, for surrender, for community, and for mission. And then I want to just remind you of this. Peter says, I'm going to pull, the Spirit is going to come on all people, men and women. Now, there are very few references to women who prophesy in the Scripture, but they are there. So there's, there is this idea, there's this baseline that God used a woman like Deborah to be a prophetess, 
That God used a woman like Anna to see, to see things in a divine picture that other people couldn't grasp. And that God raised up Philip, who was one of the apostles, his four unmarried daughters, to prophesy. Here's what I love. When the Spirit gets poured out, there are no barriers for who gets to receive it and who gets to leverage the power of the Spirit in the name of mission to the world. And so we have young women who are prophesying. We have Peter who gets a vision. Just a couple chapters after he says that. And what's the vision that Peter gets? It's weird. So that he's praying on his rooftop. He's so in tune with God and he's expecting God to speak to him in bold and dramatic ways at any time. It says he falls into a trance and he gets this picture of a sheet being lowered down by its four corners onto this roof where he's, and it's filled with animals that are unkosher, animals that the Jewish law calls unclean. Animals that he's never considered eating for ever in his life. And the voice says, get up, Peter. Kill and eat. It's like, hey, Peter, it's time for lunch. Surprise, it's sushi. You've never had it before. And then Peter goes, absolutely not. He goes, Lord, I, I've, kept, I've kept the law ever since I was a child. I'm not, I'm not going to break my streak now. I love you and I want to honor your name. And then the vision happens again. Peter, get up, kill and eat. And then it happens again. Get up, Peter, kill and eat. And when it's done... God says, listen, Peter, Peter, you don't get to call anything unclean that I've called clean. And then he goes, in just a few moments, a group of men are coming to your door. They're representatives of a Roman military officer. He's curious about God. When they invite you, go with them. And sure enough, Peter opens his eyes. There's a knock at the door, and these guys say, we, need you. we want you to come to this, this town with us. So they travel miles to get to the house of a man named Cornelius. And he's curious about the things of God. And they invite him into the home. And this is where things get weird. If you were a God-fearing Jewish person and you interpreted the law in a particular way, you would believe that if you crossed the threshold, if you stepped into the entryway of a Gentile's house, you were committing a crime against God, against your people, and against yourself. That you would be defiled. You would be unclean by contact. You'd be guilty by association. And all of their pagan darkness would just contaminate you and you would be ruined. And so Peter kind of grew up with this philosophy that said, I can bring the message of Jesus Christ to my fellow Jews, but the Gentiles, that's a, that's a different group. They're on their own. And God said, Peter, the vision that I am going to give you is going to expand your view of who God cares for and who God wants to redeem and transform for his purposes. So when God says your old men are going to get visions and your young women are going to dream dreams, they're not, they're not dreams like my son gets where he's, he's nine years old. He's like, I dream of becoming a YouTube star that can buy a Lamborghini. That's not a dream of the Spirit, all right? Let's just get that out of the way right now. The dream of the Spirit says, I have divine imagination that allows me to envision something that God wants to do that catapults me out of my comfort zone into a glorious adventure. And I've, I've said it to you before, and I'm saying this to me as much as I'm saying it to anybody else. I believe that many of the dreams that we settle for are far too small. And when we dream God-sized dreams, we don't have time for a lot of the nonsense that we often settle for. Why? Because we believe that God is initiating a, way, a spirit wave, an act of spiritual divine momentum that is going to overtake entire families and communities schools and workplaces and infuse them with hope and life and joy for the very first time. I want to ask you this. If we believe 
that once we have a face-to-face encounter with the living God, that the Spirit is available to us in abundant measure, why would we as the people of Central Wesleyan settle for anything less than every single one of us dreaming God-sized dreams for our lives, for our families, for our workplaces and our schools? And if you and I roll out of bed saying like, well, it's another Monday, I'm gonna go through my routine, our vision for what God wants to do is limited to about this. And I want to be the kind of person who when my feet hits the floor, I want to say, God, what are we, what are we going to do today? What gets to happen today? So let's be the kind of people who are believing that God wants to shape and birth something rich through us. So if you're a person who feels like you're stuck in the wasteland, the team's going to come up and I want you to, I want you to ask yourself this question. God, Which promise do I need to cling to today? What reminder of your character do I need to hold dear? Do I need to be reminded that you're going to give me evidence of your goodness again, especially if I haven't seen it for a while? Do I need to be reminded that you are the God who frees me from shame? Because some of us have been freed from shame, but we've been kind of drifting back towards experiences that brought us shame and God wants to remind us that we weren't created to go back there and we don't have to. Or do you need to be reminded of the promise that God is going to use his spirit to move you and the people that you care about? See, many of us, when we pray for our families, we we pray this very low bar for our kids, which is like, I don't mean to be crass, but God, help them not to get into trouble and help them not go to hell. That, that's not, that is not a good dream for your family. The dream, would, the, the dream should be, God, will your spirit course through our spiritual veins in such a way that my sons and daughters dream God-sized dreams for their life, for their relationships, for their talents and their abilities. And God, will you, will you allow us as parents, grandparents, great-grandparents to lead the way by modeling for them that as long as we are breathing and as long as the spirit of God is moving, we're gonna partner with the creator of the universe to move his kingdom forward in ways large and small. I think sometimes our culture, we just, we just lop off the certain ends of the age spectrum. We say, if you're, if you're too young, you're innocent, naive, and that's nice. But when you've grown up, we'll take you seriously. Or if you get past a certain point in age, uh, you're not hip to the culture, you're not down with the scene, we don't have much use for you. And the Bible says, absolutely not. Every single person has the ability to hear and discern and act on the voice of God. And sometimes God is gonna speak to us from the most unlikely of places. So just last week, we were at a doubleheader for soccer and we were driving to get some coffee in between the breaks and the games. And as we were going out, we saw a bunch of, bunch of emergency vehicles at this intersection in Grand Rapids. And my kids asked other strangers, like, what happened? And like, well, this one car rear-ended the other car. And then the, the second one caught on fire. And like, everybody got out safely. But we saw these four or five young children who were sitting at the intersection with just kind of wide eyes and bewilderment. And one of our daughters remembered that when we got rear-ended a couple years ago, a stranger came and bought them Slurpees at the gas station just to let them know that somebody noticed them and they were going to be okay. And so one of our kids is like, hey, let's go drive through and get these kids donuts. 
And because I'm an idiot, I'm like, it's hot, they'll melt. Uh, they might have gluten allergies. Um, let's just, that's weird. And fortunately, Kelly is more godly than I, and they, she won that argument. And um, it was just, it was just a really beautiful snapshot of the kingdom to see somebody envision a type of future that was bigger than the one that we would settle for. And rather than just barreling through life with our head down and our gaze on our own agenda to hit pause and say, is there something the spirit wants to do that will give the gift of hope or life to another person in this scenario? And maybe the Christian life isn't one that is comprised by following a set of guidelines but one that is dreaming creative futures that are born out of the mind of God for us and for the people that we care about. So as we head into this time of response, I want you to pray this prayer. God, what promise do I need to be reminded of? A promise of your spirit, a promise of freedom, or a promise of provision. And Lord, will you speak to us as we listen for your voice? Amen.